The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Revelation chapter 3. And our study this morning is the third part of the message, the zombie church. This is the church at Sardis that was one of the seven churches of Asia. And this is the church that's characterized by this very odd phrase in verse number one, thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. And I would submit that those are the most troubling words that a church can hear. In the letter to the church at Smyrna, which was the second letter, Jesus said that I am the one who was dead and then became alive. Now, although we know that Christians die, Christianity never emphasizes death. It's always life. The resurrection of our Lord to life is the critical validating point of our faith. Life is the testimony of truth. Christ's claim of lordship, his claim to have a kingdom, his claim of salvation, his claim to be God is dependent upon his resurrection to life. And so therefore the Lord cannot have a church which is his body. He cannot have a church that's not alive. Now the church at Sardis reversed the Lord's words. They were not alive. They were dead. Now they had been raised to life in the gospel, but now they appear that they have returned to the grave. And sadly, I'm afraid that there are many members of our Baptist churches that live like death warmed over. They don't look much like Christians anymore, but they look more like they're dead. And these are Christians that are very difficult to motivate them. You can't get them motivated in the work of Christ, at least. They have their priorities. They have their idols that make them appear to be more a part of the world than they are of Christ. And so is it small wonder that Christ would say what he does here, that he would leave a church that has too many dead people in order to work with churches that are alive and are serving. You see, a church is of no use to Christ unless it does the work that he's called the church to do. And so what point is there to have a church that's been called out of this world to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, and yet that church acts, exists, and is the same as the world that it's been called out of? And a church like that is dead to the cause of Jesus Christ. In the past two messages, we've rehearsed the history of the church at Sardis. It was once the capital of an empire. But the empire was lost because they weren't watchful of their enemies. And now the history of apathy and of unconcern comes to bear in this letter that the Lord wrote them in a comparative analysis where Jesus uses the history of the city to show how a church with the same attitude as the culture will not escape his rebuke. Now our study today is the beginning of a lesson on how you can jumpstart a dead church. Like a dead battery, how do you get a dead church started again? Well, we have the answer to this in verses 2 and 3. That will be the emphasis of the message today. Jesus sent this letter that begins with verse number 1, and he says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now I'd like for us to consider for a moment the, the charge that the Lord made against the church at Sardis. This is their spiritual condition. They are dead. What does he mean by dead? How is the church dead? Now often the scriptures speak of sin as death. 
the most familiar passage to us as Bereans on the subject of sin and death would be Ephesians 2 verse 1 and verse 5, where it speaks of being dead in sin. Then another passage is found in the story of the prodigal son, that when the prodigal was away from his father, when he was living in the world, when he was taking his fill of sin in the world, his father considered him to be dead. He, he had no relationship, it seems. He was dead to him. But when that prodigal returned, the father said, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that is a scripture that gives us hope because it tells us that a Christian that has fallen into sin, a Christian even that has ruined his reputation, can be revived. That a Christian who has fallen can be brought back from the deadness of sin to live in the resurrection life of Christ again. Our Baptist confessions explain this. As you know, we identify ourselves as historical Baptists. And the Philadelphia Confession from the 18th century says that this is what can happen to born-again believers. It says, And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgment on themselves, yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Now thank God that believers that fall into sin can be restored because there are many of God's people that surely do need it. There are people in churches that get into sin. Many scurrilous things are written here in this part of the confession. A Christian may go deep into sin. He may walk away from the Lord. He can even become hardened to the graces of the Holy Spirit. He can grieve the Holy Spirit. And yet we thank our God that the Word teaches that He will persevere. That we have a persevering attachment to Christ that's always sufficient to renew us again to repentance till we serve the Lord again. We can be brought back from that state of sin. And so for a time, a Christian may appear to be dead. But that Christian can be brought to life again. But we see here that the deadness of an entire church body, that takes us into a different realm. Now we're talking about something entirely different. Because in church membership, we have both those that are the wheat and the tares. That is, that there are those that are lost in, the, in, in churches, lost people that are on the rolls of churches. They are members of churches, and yet they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus gave us a parable about this in Matthew 13. I'd like you to turn there if you would. And this parable is actually about the kingdom, not the church, but it's about the kingdom. But there are some truths here that can be applied to the church. In the 24th verse of Matthew chapter 13, And another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The, spirit, uh, the servants rather said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now there in the parable, the wheat represents true believers. The tares are lost people that are mixed in with true believers. And at times, those tares may look like wheat. They may even live for a time where we believe that they are Christians, 
But what they do in the church is to rob the soil of its nutrients. They decrease the fruits of the harvest. They are actually harming the church while they're there. And so we can liken the tares in that parable to the lost people that were in membership at Sardis. The church there at Sardis did not try to keep them out. They didn't weed their garden to get out the tares. And so there was no effort to fight against that. No effort to fight against heresies and sin that's in the church. And so they accepted the troublemakers and those with bad doctrine until the church had become overbalanced with evil and was about to be totally overwhelmed. Now the sinfulness then of unbelievers affects the whole body of the church until the works of the church are no longer the works of God. And we see this so much in churches today that there are so many lost people in the churches. They've been gathering in lost people. There is no gospel preached. So the works that are done there are not the works of Jesus Christ. They are the works of Satan. And Satan's work is perpetuated in the world by those who have church over the door. But here's where... The, the parable veers off in its application for the church. Because Jesus said in the kingdom, He said you can't go out there and just gather up the tares and root them out right now unless you gather up the believers also. We don't have the ability to do that. But there is a difference when He talks about the church because the church is supposed to be holy. The church is to be blameless. The church is to be chaste and virtuous. And what we can't do, we can't leave the tares in. And so we are commanded to pull them up, lest they destroy us. Now, although Sardis had some faithful believers, the tares were taking over the church, and so Jesus said something has to be done about this before they take the church down. You see, it's impossible to revive a church where the members are not true born-again believers. And so you can't fill up a church with the unregenerate and have a living church. Now, those that are true believers will realize what the Philadelphia Confession of Faith teaches, that they can and they will be brought to repentance. This is how we know true believers from false professors. The false either get saved or they're pulled out. And this is exactly what the Lord calls for in the passage. Go back to the faith, remember what the Lord called you to do. And I believe that the Philadelphia Confession is right about this, that it is according to the Word of God, that God's people will be renewed to repentance. But they're not renewed without a means to it. A dead, backslidden Christian doesn't come back without a sanctifying, purifying work of God. And so the church must go through the steps that are outlined in this passage to see a true revival, to see people brought back to, to life that appear to be dead. They're Christians, but they look like they're dead. Now, point number one in our outline was this question. What is the reputation of the church? And we've spent a couple of weeks dealing with that, their reputation. They say that they are alive, but they are dead. They look like the world, which means that they were in sin, and sin always brings death. And with their activity, all the things that they did, the world would say, oh, this is a church that is alive. But Christ didn't see it that way. No, you're not alive. To the world, you may appear to be alive, but to me, you are dead. The second question is, what are they required to do? Verses 2 and 3. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now there in those verses are the steps to revival. The word that anchors that section, which you might want to underline, is the word watch. And be watchful. It means to be alert. Watch is a common command in the New Testament. The key to this passage is to remember what the Lord has told them in so many other scriptures of the Word of God. And if we are alert to those things, we will not fall. And then if we are in trouble, if we have fallen, then we return to the steps that are outlined here. We do as verse 3 says, we remember what we have received and heard, and we hold that fast. Now let me give you some New Testament examples 
of what the Lord says that the church must watch for. The first one we find here in the passage that we're studying, where the Word of God tells us, or tells the people at Sardis, He says to them, watch your history. What is it that you've learned from your failures in the past? What is it that caused those failures? And when the Sardians saw the word watch in this letter, the Lord had their attention. Because they knew their history. They knew the history of their city. That it was a lack of vigilant watchfulness that had caused two historic military defeats. Cretius lost the Lydian Empire to Cyrus because he thought Sardis was impregnable. He failed to post a watch at night on the sheer cliffs that were around the city. He thought those cliffs were impossible to scale, but he was wrong. There was no one to watch, and so in the night, the Persians climbed those cliffs. One by one, they climbed the cliffs until there were enough of them in the city that they were able to take it. Three hundred years later, it happened again. Antiochus Epiphanes conquered the city using the same approach as Cyrus. They failed to leave a watchman on the very same spot as before, and the city was defeated. So to Sardis, this word watch is a matter of bitter history. They knew where the Lord was going when he used this word. This is, the implications of this are very easy for them to interpret. This is not a hidden thing to them. They understand, like their city, the church had not watched the enemy. And so temptation by temptation, they were defeated. Every Christian has an enemy that lurks in the night and lays siege to his faith. The Bible says that he's like a lion who crouches in the night. He walks softly so he won't be heard. And secretly he seeks whom he may devour. I've heard of villages in Africa where a lion, a lion will come in at night and attack children. If there's no one on guard to watch, then the lion sneaks in and he comes in and he snatches a child. And this is the very same thing that happens to Christians when they're spiritually asleep. In Romans, the Bible says that we must awaken out of our sleep. We must watch or we're going to be overcome by evil. The Bible also teaches that we're in spiritual warfare. A warfare that doesn't end until we leave this life. But it also says that we have spiritual weapons that we can use in this warfare. But we've got to be ready to use them. We can't be sleeping when we should be using the, the instruments of warfare that God has given us. He's given us a shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. He's given us the breastplate of righteousness. And all that the Lord supplies us in our Christian lives is sufficient to fight the devil at every turn. But we've got to be awake to use those instruments of our warfare. Now in Sardis, the defenses of the church were down. Just like the defenses of the city were down and the church was caught off guard in Satan's attacks because they did not watch. And how does the devil attack? As Cyrus did. He attacked under the cover of darkness. Satan waits until no one is watching and then his army comes in before anyone knows what happens. Does that sound like an unsuspecting church? It's what happened to... The Sardians, the city of Sardis, no one knew that the enemy was in. Now they were prepared for the frontal attack. If you remember me telling you the story, that there was an approach to the city, the common approach, the one road that went into the city, which they could defend. So they expect there's going to be the frontal attack because nobody can come the other way. So they're watching the frontal attack. And this is what we do as a church. We're always watching the frontal attack because we're always attacked there. It's, it's common for Satan to attack us where he can be seen, but it's also common for him to attack us where he can't be seen, where nobody's watching. So while we're busy at the front door, Satan is often sneaking in the back door. So what's going on at the back when no one is watching? Satan's greatest successes are when he occupies us at the front door then sneaks in the back and he creeps in unaware and he does it many times through false professors. He creeps in with unbelievers and those unbelievers come into the church and they are side by side with true believers in Jesus Christ. And the defenses of the believers, the true believers are down because they expect 
that people in their church are just like them, that they believe just like them. On the inside, everybody is a friend. Now, Satan is successful when he begins to peel away our armor so that we're not watching any longer about who are really harmful in our church. And often he begins with church members on their church attendance. This is something I feel like I need to say today to those that are not here. He often begins to work on church attendance. And it usually starts with just a service missed, just one here, another one there, and another one there. Now as a church, one of the things that we do when we come into membership of the church, we commit ourselves to support our church by being in the services. Do you understand that? That's part, that's part of the covenant that each member of Berean Baptist Church makes with all the other members. That we are going to commit ourselves to be here in the services of the church. And what we do is we help each other by using the spiritual gifts that God gives each of us for the good of His body. And so if the members aren't here, then those spiritual gifts aren't used. When attendance suffers, I know that we have members that are on the way down. They miss the fellowship of the church, and they're no longer really a part of the life of the church. Now this problem was amplified some time ago when I spoke to one of the little children whose parents is not, are not as regular as they should be. And this child was in church on a Wednesday night because he was staying with one of our Wednesday night families. And I just asked him because I didn't see him in church often and on Wednesday evenings. And I said, why are you here tonight? And he said, well, I really don't know. Uh, but I need to get home to let Mama know there's church on Wednesday nights too. Many Sunday Christians used to be Wednesday Christians too. But they stopped coming on Wednesday evenings. They stopped coming to the Bible study. And now Sunday attendance also suffers. Did you know, and we've taught this, that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath? That Sunday is the Lord's Day? And some are not fully committed to honoring the Sabbath. Oh, they have an excuse. They make what they believe is an acceptable excuse, but we have to ask, by whose judgment is that excuse acceptable? Certainly not God's. And I know that members are beginning to slip away when they do this. Sooner or later, it's going to catch up with them. It will not fail to hurt their spiritual lives. And sadly, their testimony begins to affect others that are in the church. If that person does it, then why not me? What are we to be to other members of the church but an example of a testimony of what church members should be? I was pleased to hear one of our faithful church members told me this, that they refused to attend when a family member had scheduled a family function on the Lord's Day, a family get-together. And this dear member of our church said to them, Fine, you schedule it on Sunday, you know I'm not going to be there because I go to church on Sunday. So who represents Christ to their family better? The one who compromises that? Or the one who goes to church to be with the faithful? But that's one of Satan's subtle methods. He draws us away from the services where our faith and our fellowship is strengthened and Christians are weak without the fellowship of the church. And they're in danger because that's the time that Satan attacks. Now what we need to remember is that the church is Christ's body. Have you read that in the New Testament? The church is the body of Christ. And every part of a body is vital to the whole. We're an incomplete body if each part doesn't do his, his, his job or his part. Your spiritual gift is needed in the church. The whole church body is weakened without the spiritual gifts that God gives to be used in His church. And we usually find this to be true not always, but almost always, that non-attending members are usually not praying members. Usually they're not Bible reading members. Usually they're not studying members. Usually they're not evangelizing members. They let down in every area of Christian responsibility. This is exactly what the Bible describes as a sleeping, sardian Christian. Now secondly, the passage teaches that we are to watch 
for holiness. Jesus is the one who stands amidst the candlesticks. Those are his churches. And he said that we must guard against temptation. In Matthew 26, 41, he said to his disciples, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When you become a Christian, the Lord changes the disposition of your heart. Now before you were saved, you were obstinate. But when God changed your heart, He made you willing to serve Christ. Without a Holy Spirit makeover, you never would. You would never choose Christ, you would never come to Him, you would never decide to follow Him until the Holy Spirit did something in your heart to make you different. And so in the moment of salvation, you come to Christ and you surrender your life to Him, and at that point, you'll do anything for Him. You'll go anywhere that Christ tells you to go. You'll do anything that He tells you to do. Everything that He says, you'll do it. And if your experience of commitment at that moment that you were saved was not that, then you didn't really get saved. Now, do you remember that the disciples thought then that they were secure in their faith? When Jesus said to them, I, I, I've got to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. Do you remember that it was Thomas who spoke up and said, well, if he's going to Jerusalem, let's go with him. Let's all go, that we'll die there. Or at the end of the Last Supper, when Jesus said that he must leave the disciples, he must go away, it was Peter who said, where are you going, Lord? I'll go with you. I'll lay down my life for you, no matter where. I'll, I'll do it, I'll lay down my life. And Peter was willing, and I believe in that moment when Peter said that, yes, he was willing, that if Christ was going to die right at that moment, Peter was standing there, Peter would have given his life for Jesus Christ. But something happened in the ensuing time, Peter instead fell asleep. Jesus went out to the garden to pray. He's only hours away from his arrest, and the humiliating death of the cross, Matthew 26, 41, follows that, as I read just a moment ago. The same disciples that said they would die with him earlier, they said, we'll die with you, had fallen asleep while Jesus was praying. In the 40th verse, Jesus said to Peter, what, couldn't you watch with me for one hour? And he followed that with verse 41, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When did Jesus say that to Peter after he'd fallen asleep? Oh yes, we're ready to die for Christ, aren't we? We say that we will. Our redeemed, enlightened spirit says, yes, I'm going to die for Christ. But we don't count on that powerful pull of the flesh. When that trial of faith comes, then our flesh is weak. The flesh is the weak point. It's the point where our spiritual being is scored. It's like a scored piece of wood. That's the place where you break the plank. It's at the weak spot. And our flesh is that weak spot. How spiritually strong are you? Have you evaluated yourself? Do you know that the Bible tells you to do that? Examine your faith. Have you examined to see how spiritually fit that you are? How spiritually strong are you? Let me help you to determine the answer to that. Each of you, this is one of the ways... Each of you carries in your pocket or in your purse one of Satan's greatest temptations. Satan's temptations are as modern as the times. Satan adapts to the times. Smartphones, tablets, watches with internet connectivity, they're the new sources of temptation and they make you just a split second away from imaginable evil. The things that enter into our minds through the eyes and the ears have a profound effect on our actions. Satan attacks subtly. How easy is it for us to click just one link more, just one more time to see what is behind evil door number three? Will you see the picture? Will you watch the video? Will you respond to the post? What will it hurt if you do it just one time. Will it hurt? And the answer to that is always yes, it will hurt. You see, you may not plan to do evil. You, you may not even be looking for evil, but it will find you. And the Spirit says, 
your spirit says, I'm not going to do it. I will not do it. I'll not touch that. But your flesh is weak. If you hang out with temptation, sooner or later it's going to get you. A few years ago, I, I warned about Facebook and Internet activities. And I was complaining then about lewd things that I'd seen posted by people that I know, and sadly some of them were members of Berean. And there was an elderly couple in our church that never had a computer. They weren't very much familiar with the easy temptations of the Internet. So afterwards they came to me. After I'd preached the message, they came and said, do we really have members of Berean that do such things? And I have to tell you that I was embarrassed by that question. And I must be embarrassed because the answer that I had to give was, yes, we do. I'm afraid that we do. And their next question was even harder for me to answer, and I didn't want to answer it. They said, then how are they still members of Berean? How are they still members of our church? And the answer is, how indeed? And that's a question that I was almost too afraid to answer, because I know the problem is too widespread. There are too many members now that have a seared conscience about such things. It doesn't bother them anymore if they do this. They're not bothered if they have a terrible testimony. And so to answer that question the way it should be answered, I'd have to police everyone's internet activities 24 hours a day. And I can't do that. So all that I can do is to repeat the warnings of Scripture that call you to holiness the same as the Word of God does. Folks, it's deadly sin. Christians used to sin privately. Oh, they try to keep people from finding out about their sins. You know, that's not true anymore. Now you just post it for everybody to see. Put it out there on Facebook or wherever. Let everybody see what you're doing. They have no conscience about going public with their sin. So do you wonder, what happened to God's blessing on the church? Oh, we can fill the pews in the church in one of two ways. We can compromise with the world and we can draw the lost into our services. They'll come. They will come, but they'll not be changed. And our reputation would be life, at least among the world. The reputation of our church would be life. There's a lot going on there. Have you seen how that church is growing? And the community would say, there is a church that is live. But to Christ, we would be dead. The second method of growth is the biblical method. And this is where we confess our sins. And this is where we pray for God to use us. And this is where we ask God to help us to avoid temptations and where we seek holiness. And when we do that, what does the Bible say that God will do? He will add to the church. And you say, well, is that biblical? Does that really happen? Can it happen? It's what happened in the New Testament. I can show you in Acts 2, 42 and 47. This is the first church at Jerusalem. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers, praising God and having favor with all the people. Listen. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Do you understand what they did? The Lord grew the church. Why? Because they're righteous. Because they follow Him, because they're holy, because they listen to doctrinal preaching, because they meet for fellowship, because they keep the ordinances, because they pray. They're holy in their profession by doing the watchful activities of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if Sardis had done those things, it would be a different church. The message that I'm preaching now would be a different message. So we must get priorities straight. It's holiness that makes us alive and like the Lord of the church. So revival comes when we watch and we pray and we do not enter into temptation. Sin is death. Holiness is life. Thirdly, we are to watch for heresy. Watch out for heresy. Now, in the message at Thyatira, I spoke extensively about heresy. And I, and I can't say enough about it, because churches today embrace nearly every heresy imaginable. And Paul said, as a church, we've got to watch out for this. We've got to be careful about it, because there are those who infect the church with heresy. In Acts 20, verses 29 to 31, Paul said, and he's speaking to elders at Ephesus, 
He said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Inside the church and outside the church we are attacked. I read these verses from Acts 20 often. They're very familiar to you. I don't often read verse number 32. There it says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among, among all them, an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. So what happens when you're watching? What happens when you look out for the false teachers? What happens when you keep them out? The Lord will build you up. I preached on this earlier, and I said, I can't hide the names of those that are false teachers. They must be named. And I'm not ashamed that I attach names to heresies. And when I do, I'm far nicer about it than the New Testament. Paul said that false teachers are grievous wolves. And that reference is not as familiar to us as it was to them. Comparing false teachers to wolves made an impression. When he said this, when Paul said this, this made an impression on their minds. We try to save wolves. They tried to kill them. We want to keep them from extinction. They tried to kill them down to the very last one. We want to protect them and reestablish them in areas where they once lived. And people in the first century would say, Are you crazy? What's wrong with you people? They're about as environmentally friendly as Jorge. A shepherd is not interested in keeping wolves alive. He's bound to kill all the wolves that he can. At night... Sheep were brought into the sheepfold where a shepherd could keep his eye on them and he would sleep at the gate with one of his eyes open. And what if he didn't watch? Oh, he dared, he dared not leave the sheep alone. Good shepherds wouldn't do it because good shepherds were close to their sheep. They loved their sheep. Jesus used that shepherd-sheep metaphor often in the Scriptures to describe his love for his people. He's the good shepherd that always protects his sheep. And a shepherd was devastated if he got up in the morning and he found that one of his lambs was soaked in blood and torn apart by a wolf. So you couldn't say much worse about a person than to say, oh, he is a grievous wolf. In Galatians, Paul said that false teachers are cursed. They are cut off from God. Peter, in his description, wasn't very kind either. He said they are damned. He said they're brute beast. These are made to be taken and destroyed. I haven't said that yet, I don't think. That false preacher down the street, he's made, made to be taken and destroyed. I haven't said that yet. I might, but I haven't said it yet. They're wells without water. That's what he says. That doesn't sound very serious. But to people living in an arid country ready to die of thirst, the well of, without water is debilitating. There's nothing good there. There's nothing helpful in that. Jude chimed in on the subject, and he said also they're brute beasts. He said they're filthy dreamers, clouds without water, raging waves of the sea, trees with withered, rotten fruit. So I don't feel too bad about what I say. False teaching is a dangerous cancer. Peter said they beguile unstable souls. And who are the unstable? Well, part of those unstable are Christians who don't watch. Heresy overcomes them. I've seen that many times. You know the old saying, those who don't stand for, for anything will fall for everything. And that's true in the church. Heresy destroys the church like a pack of ravishing wolves. When I watch prosperity preachers, I don't see toothy grins. I see teeth that are sharpened to devour. Their message is sweet, but it's sugar-coated strychnine. They're wolves. The message is deadly. A false gospel will bloody your soul like a wolf tears apart a lamb and leaves him to bleed out. We're not going to be revived if heresy is unchecked. Peter, Paul, and Jude were all on top of this and they said, they said these things to people inside 
the church and outside the church. And when there are people on the inside of the church that oppose the pulpit that preaches the truth, they are also brute beasts and ravening wolves. We're not safe with them living among us. So here we have history, and we have holiness and heresy. And now finally, what is it that we are to watch for? Well, those are very negative things, aren't they? So let me give you something that's filled with a positive hope. What else are we to watch for? We are to watch for the homecoming. Watch for our homecoming. And what is that homecoming? That's the return of the Lord. Numerous times we're told to watch for Christ's coming. That's the source of our hope. We're revived when we meditate on Christ's return. We increase our holiness in the expectation that Christ will return. Now, if you believe that the coming of Christ is imminent, will that change the way that you live? Well, here's some verses that will help you on that. Matthew 24, 42 and 43 Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But this, know this, that if the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Mark 13, Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you what? Sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The end of the fourth chapter is one of the often used texts on Christ's return. Paul said that when Christ comes, that the dead in Christ will be raised. And he said the living will be caught up. They'll be changed and caught up to be with the Lord in the air. And then afterwards in chapter 5, he insisted on the vigilance of Christians because of Christ's coming. Watching, being careful, looking for the coming, because you don't know when it's going to happen. And so he begins in verse number 1 of chapter 5. But the times... And the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. That's useless, he's saying. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And let me put that scriptures, those scriptures together with 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. What will you do if you believe what you say you believe? How many of you believe that Jesus is alive and that he could come today? How many of us believe that? Do you believe that at any moment the trumpet could sound and that, that trumpet would be heard and Christ would appear and take you up? Do you believe that? Well, if you say that you believe it, how strongly do you believe it? I would suspect most of, of us believe it. Hardly at all. And I can say that, I think, sometimes to those who appear to be the strongest church members. That we believe it hardly at all. How could we not be ashamed of the way that we live if we believe it? Would you want Christ to return to see what your life is like? What you watch? What you text? How you speak? What kinds of things do you drink? How do you abuse the Lord's Sabbath? Do you want Him to find you violating nearly every commandment that you're big enough to do? What does the Scripture say? Christ will come without warning. He comes at an hour that you don't know. He'll give no notice. And we ask, well, why isn't there a day set? Why, why, why can't we just look this up in the Bible? Why isn't there a date 
set that Christ will come. And we can just look it up. We can read it. And we'll know. And we can watch for that day to come. Why not? For this reason, it's unknown to you to keep you on your toes, to keep you sharp, so that you always watch and you're always holy because you don't know when He's going to come. If you're watching for His return, your mind is always on Him. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What a question. What manner of persons ought you to be? Well, you ought to be holy. If you believe what you confess, you couldn't be otherwise. You would be a fool to believe that Christ could come immediately that he could come right now, that the trumpet could sound right now, and yet go on living like he will never come. Very few live their confession. It's hypocritical in the highest degree to say to Jesus, I will die for you if necessary. And then you turn a blind eye and you sleep at his coming. If you believe that he could come at any time, then why would you miss the services of your church? If you believe that He could come at any time, why don't you live like every day is Sunday? When we watch, we're prepared and expectant. Those two things, do you understand? These two things, watching and being expectant, they tend to holiness. Revival comes to a church that is always looking for Christ to return. But let me remind you as I close today that while you watch and wait, Christ is already watching you. You can't hide anything from Him. Even if He should come today while you're sitting in the pew and you say, I lucked out. I was in church when Christ came. Uh, I sure had Him fooled. No. Because he, He's already watching. He, he knows where you were last night. He knows what you did. He knows what you said. He knows what you thought. There are still some Christians that do want to keep their sins private. Oh, they don't want anybody to find out about them. I, I don't know what to say about that. Uh, you should confess your sins, but probably it's better if you're going to sin to keep it so everybody doesn't know about it, so you don't bring a reproach on the Lord. But there are some people who say, well, you know, I do need to keep my sins private, and they think keeping them private, nobody knows, so God doesn't know either. This is what Jeremiah wrote. Thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. How many of you believe that's the Word of God? Do you? Do we believe that's the Word of God? Do you confess that this is His true Word? Or is that confession that you would make now also suspect? If it's God's Word and Christ is always watching, then why aren't you always faithful and holy? Christ is as real in this room today as He will be in the rapture when He comes. Do you believe that? Believing that is the key to revival in the church. The true believer believes what God says. That revives us. I don't believe that we are a dead church. Overall, I would say, no, we're not. But I do believe that there are some body parts of Berean that are suffering necrosis. And I do believe that there are some parts of Berean that are gangrenous. And unless that changes, it's going to affect the health of the entire body. We cannot let death rule our church because this church belongs to the living Christ. Now, in the next message... We continue with revival and the good hope that the church will be corrected. The good news is, as the Philadelphia Confession said, that confession is true. We have a persevering faith. We are attached to Christ with an unbreakable bond. He draws us and He binds us with cords of love. Sometimes He must chastise, and that chastisement hurts. There's no joy in it, but... He knows what He's doing, and with it, it brings the peaceable fruits of righteousness. 
But the question is, isn't it better to have the peaceful fruits of righteousness without the chastisement? I would think so. I would think it would be, and there's a way to do that. If we watch, if we look for the Lord, if we live holy and faithful lives, then we have peaceable fruit of righteousness, and the Lord never needs to touch us with a whip. We obey, we follow, we watch for Christ to come. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Father, we are expectant that you will send Jesus back. In our hearts, Lord, we do believe that he could come at any time. We believe that. We say that we believe that. Our difficulty is living it, showing it by our actual things we do, by activities, by being faithful to your church, by living like we should as a Christian at work, by living as a Christian should in our social media and all these other things that go on in our lives. Many times those things belie the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. When we say that Jesus could come back at any time, and yet we still live like it's never going to happen. We must watch and be ready. Help us to be that kind of people. Lord, I know that I'm speaking today to mostly Christians, if not all Christians, that are here and say they are believers in Jesus Christ, that in their heart they know that you are Lord and Savior, they surrendered themselves to you. And in that moment of faith, when they trusted you, when they put their faith in you, when they heard the gospel of Christ, they said, I will follow Christ, I'll do what you want me to do, I will live for you. And that was a solemn promise and true promise at the time that they made it. But now, time has gone by. Jesus is off praying. Jesus is somewhere else, we think not really watching what we do, and so we live accordingly. Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to understand your eye is on us all the time. And if we're going to be a revived church, a faithful church, a true church that works for you and accomplishes your will in this world, then we must be holy. Help us to be that. Help us to surrender our lives to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org